projects, big infrastructure building, of course, um, lots of things going on. So, um, so yeah, it's an interesting market to work in for sure. Certainly is. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I really loved about it was the multicultural aspect of the fact that it's like, it's in the Middle East. So it's like right by Europe, right by Africa and right by Asia. And, oh yeah. You know, um, geographically speaking it couldn't be more ideal um i mean it's 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 exactly equidistant between those major centers um and uh, and yeah you could probably operate if you pick one place where you can operate in, uh, to, to to a global audience it probably would be dubai um so um so yeah good spot man Anyway, um, welcome everybody to Brain Food Live on Air, bringing it to you every Friday as we always do. Welcome everybody to the show. Um, I'm super excited uh, today um, because we're going to be uh, sh shifting our format. Um, usually we have a panel kind of approach, um, uh, but today I thought it would be suitable to have just one person on as the guest today, um, simply because um, I admire and like this person so much. Um, and it's a rare chance to get him on screen because since he uh, got his big new job um, at the HMRC, he's had not the, the opportunity um, to be talking uh, to us at large. Um, it's Andy Hedworth. He's going to come on soon. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to having a chat with him. He's one of the, I think, the, the first true influencers, so to speak, before that was even a term. He was genuinely provided some amazing um, kind of uplifting and valuable educational content way back when. Um, and, um, yeah, it's going to be great to have a chat with him about recruitment leadership of, uh, of a massive organization. I didn't realize 66,000 employees work for the HMRC. Um, which I think is the biggest uh, organization in the government. Um, so it'd be fascinating to learn what it is to recruit for that and actually lead a, what has got to be a massive recruitment team for that. I don't know how many recruiters you'd need to handle an organization of that type of size, but probably several hundred, I imagine. Um, so, um, so yeah, it will be fascinating. Uh, but anyway, before we get into that, let's do some sound checks, make sure everyone's okay and listening all, all right. Um, folks, we should be blasting this out on uh, Crowdcast. If, you, if you're seeing me on Crowdcast now, let me know whether you can hear the audio and video okay. Um, we have once again tried a new experiment as uh, so we're blasting this out on a number of LinkedIn channels. So if you're watching this on LinkedIn, please do let me know. I am not 100% confident this is working okay uh, because it is so new. It's working on my LinkedIn at least. That's cool. Um, but we have a new technique. Um, I think Stephen O'Donnell is helping us blast this out. So you should actually be watching this from the TA Tech Company page as well. Um, and if you're doing that, hello, good to see you. Um, we're going to do a LinkedIn takeover as soon as I figure out how to do this properly. We get a thousand people broadcasting Brain Food Live to everybody. Wouldn't that be a good idea, hey? Um, anyway, we're getting people who are saying they can hear on Crowdcast. Can you hear me on LinkedIn, folks? Give me some sort of indication. Uh, let me just check my... Uh, uh, da, da, da. Oh, yeah, some people are loud and clear. Thank you, Laura. Very good. Okay, people can hear us. That should be fine. Um, okay, let's get on with the show. Um, first of all, uh, we always need to thank our sponsors for this show. Remember, folks, we cannot run Brain Food Live without sponsors every week stepping up and saying, we want to support this uh, and want you to keep going. Um, so today, I'm very, very pleased to say our sponsors are Willow. Uh, Willow are one of the most amazing, in fact, Scottish technology companies. I mean, big up to all the Scots that are building amazing HR tech. 
Um, but Willow, one of the uh, really uh, interesting organizations that have emerged in the video space over the last couple of years. Um, and they're doing some great things, particularly for the agency and high volume market, asynchronous interviewing. But anyway, I don't need to talk about it because we've got one of the founders on um, who's going to help us uh, talk about it himself. This is you and, my, you and Cameron. So let me see whether I can bring you on. Um, and hopefully he's suitably uh, suitably attired in, in, in uh, obnoxious swag. Um, he can tell us all about Willow. Um, let's have a look if you can get him on. I think he's coming. There he is. Not only subtle swag, but an obnoxious uh, pair of spectacles, Ewan. Good Lord. They're amazing. I, I love the color, man. Thank you. Thank you. It brightens up my day a bit. That's fantastic. Um, I need to get a pair. I love these yeah. specs, but they're the only ones I have. And basically, I'm a bit bored of them as well. So now and again, I need to just jazzy up with what you've got there. Um, Ewan, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Willow? Who, uh, What is it? Who should care about it? Um, how are you guys getting on? Give us the uh, give us the overview here. Thank you. Well, great to be here. I'm Ewan Cameron, co-founder and, and CEO of Willow. Uh, I started the company because of my own poor experiences in hiring and interviewing for jobs. I'm also someone with dyslexia, so I wasn't able to show my own strengths on the CV. So I decided to build something better back in 2019. Uh, with Willow, you can invite candidates to interview through your own dashboard or through your ATS. And we're now um, next week launching with workable and SCB success factors as additional integrations, which is exciting. Um, candidates can then record their own responses uh, in their own time using text, audio, or video. Uh, this provides obviously flexibility for you as a recruiter you no longer have to spend days phone screening, scheduling, dealing with no-shows. Um, and did you know, this is an interesting stat that we just pulled out from last quarter, 35% of our candidates that go through the platform interview between 6 p.m. or 6 a.m. Not many people interview between that time, so pretty cool to see that candidates can now use Willow to interview out of hours. That's, That's actually hard. really interesting. And by the way, it's something we've never really thought about at all. Like we, we organize according to our, our suitability and yeah. candidates because they want the job. Of course, they're, they're going to try and be flexible, but you might be catching them at not the perfect time. Um, you know, they may be rushing to drop the kids off or something, or they need to, you know, there's something, there's an Amazon package that might be arriving that's distracting them in the mind or whatever. Um, so wouldn't it be great if you provide the candidate the opportunity, simply you interview in the time that suits you and then put your best, best self forward. It's, it's one of those hidden problems that we, we, we generally don't discover until we have technology of this type. So fantastic. You have that feature, um, Ewan. And in fact, if you produce any data like that, um, I'd love to see it. So get Shannon to knock up some PDF or something. I think that's yeah. that is something that the Brentford community I think would love to see. It's like really valuable stuff. Absolutely, yeah, that'd be great. We'll do that. We've been we've just been working on some data recently. So did uh, did over one hundred fifty thousand interviews in Q one. So there's lots of data that's in massive. that data set uh, to to kind of delve into. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, obviously it's a great way to capture all those candidates out of hours. But the, also, I guess the beauty of what we do is that it's consistent. So every single interview, you're asking the same questions in the same environment over and over again, which obviously allows everyone to be on that level playing field, which is even more important. Yeah. Can you give us some insight? Like, I know you don't want to give, give the game away any spoilers here, Ewan, but from those 150,000 interviews that you've spotted over the first, or you've, you've, you've harvested yeah. over the first three months of this year, what kind of things struck you? It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I didn't realize. Yeah, so first of all, that, that key stat I just gave you there, outside of uh, working hours, 
Another interesting one is more than 40% of the interviews were happening uh, during the weekends. So that's quite an interesting stat as well. Not many, not many recruiters, I'm sure, that are listening interview on weekends, but obviously candidates love the flexibility of that. Uh, so that, that really stuck out to me as well. Um, and then the amount of time that it actually takes to do the interview is a strong one. So if you look at the typical Willow interview, it has uh, six questions in it. Uh, you can ask up to 20, but the average is six. And the average candidate is taking uh, between 15 and 20 minutes to complete their interview. So again, interesting time saving there. A lot of our, a lot of the people on this call and a lot of the people we speak to are taking, you know, 30 minutes or an hour to interview a candidate at the early stages. Um, but you're allowing candidates to do that in 15 to 20. So time saving there um, from a candidate perspective. I tell you what, I wonder whether that's the lack of small talk, you know. Um, yeah. do, do you know when you interact with a, a human being, the, the, inevitably you have to just do some chit chat because yeah. uh, that's just how human beings need to operate. But the chit chat is actually time <laughs> um, and it's not accounted for. Yeah. Um, so hence every uh, interview is like 30 minutes is probably what we've scheduled in the diary. Um, but in fact, there's, that's an unnecessary period of time because, you know, yes, you might get on well with the candidate, but you're not there to really build a personal relationship with them. They're there to, uh, you know, uh, get through this process and the candidate feels much the same way. So very interesting. The elimination of chit chat, folks, isn't that an interesting uh, innovation that we might see? Yeah. All right, you and listen, if people who should care about this, um, what kind of recruiter typically uses Willow? What is the yeah. what is the, the person that needs to be looking into this as a as, as, as a tool that can use for them and their team? Absolutely. Great question. So high volume, anyone that's hiring in high volumes, anyone that's hiring in early careers or graduates, those are the key, key kind of companies that are using us today. You know, we've got kind of scale ups like Hotjar, GoCardless, HelloFresh, Tunstow Health, all, you know, scaling up globally. Um, looking for ways to make their either their graduate or their early careers schemes more efficient, getting people um, through the through the pipeline, and um, yeah, that, that's kind of our typical customer base. If you want to learn more, uh, Willow.video, that's W-I-L-L-O.video, um, you can book a demo with one of us. Yeah, fantastic. Make sure you insist that Ewan gives the personal demo. Let's get the CEO still involved, yeah. bring him back down. I will into personally it. do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fantastic. You and listen, um, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for uh, delivering Absolutely. that pitch for us. Uh, hang around. We're going to have a really good conversation with uh, Andy Headworth. He's obviously running a huge organization as well. I wonder whether there's a obvious application for this in the government sector at some point. So um, uh, great to see you, Ewan. We'll catch up soon, mate. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Cheers. Great, great chat, um, and uh, and wonderful to see uh, a product uh, make that type of uh, that type of impact. Um, okay, man, let's do a quick review of the the newsletter. I don't know whether uh, you've uh, you've had the chance to do that whilst you're sunning yourself. By the way, have you noticed that Adam's a bit pink? Uh, that is because he's Scottish I was looking and he was, he's been in the Middle East. I was looking um, at Ewan's color there, thinking, how, why does he not look the same color as me? He's also Scottish, but. Um... I don't know why I look so red. It's because you're sunburned, mate. You've, you've done no, the in the, in the, and got in the mirror, I look brown. Mm, no, <laughs> this is like super right. Red. right. Okay, um, so uh, I, I enjoyed your poll around quality of hire. Um, okay. And yeah, 48% replied that they do nothing, but they, they want to do something about it. Seems yep. like there's a big opportunity here for somebody to fix this piece of missing information um i think that every organization has got the data they need to be able to measure this 
but it's in disparate systems and they haven't connected it. So imagine if you could have a situation where your HR system was also your applicant tracking system and could talk like to, to the HR system. That would just be terrific. Um, quality hires, uh, very difficult, a, a very contentious subject because it means different things to different people. Um, but I reckon time to performance is a good, uh, you know, uh, measure of that. So you'd expect somebody to be performing at the two week period or the three month period or whatever it is, depending on the type of job. And if the average is three months and the person's up to speed and hitting their targets and, you know, um, expectations by month two and a half, then they're a great quality hire. Whereas if they're taken till month five and they're like on the verge of hitting their, you know, probation period getting extended, then they're not a great quality hire. That yeah. type of thing is something we, we could, could probably work with. Time to performance or time to productivity, some people like to say, um, and, and whatever that measure is, and obviously it will change according to the job nature of the job and maybe the experience of the candidate as well. Um, and maybe even the newness of the job. Sometimes you have a job that you know you actually don't know what is productive. But if you if you, there's there's some different measures you could use per job, per function, so to speak. But it's a useful one to think about. We're going to do quality of hire for Infood Live at some point next next uh, next month, I think. So uh, it could even be a couple of weeks' time. Uh, we'll run that. We've got people like uh, Rob McIntosh got something to say about that. Uh, I think Chloe Morrison. I think Chloe's watching this today. She's coming on. Um, and I believe uh, Andrew Gadamski is obviously amazing. Uh, uh, he's going to come on and help us chat about that as well. Um, so, yeah, this, that's a, that's the topic we're going to run. Okay, give us one more, mate, or a couple more. Um, well, I mean, like, you couldn't really um, read the newsletter without um, reading about artificial intelligence, could you? I'm sorry, there yes, was that's true. Almost, there was almost nothing in there that wasn't artificial intelligence this week, but it's fine. It's flavor of the month. And... Uh, it's going to be flavor of the next coming years, I would expect. One thing I really love is the emergence of AutoGPT, which not only creates text, but it, it reads the web as well. Yeah. So while I've been like just saying nonstop, stop talking garbage about ChatGPT being a sourcing tool and being an assessment product and all these other spurious use cases, which is nonsense. Actually, AutoGPT might be. Uh, there's quite a lot of things it can do that ChatGPT can't do yeah. if it works. And I haven't tried it, so I don't. Know That's if it true. Works. All of these are like really people who fiddled with it and got really advanced. But it is kind of kind of. Um, it's very hard to make anything definitive. Like, don't make definitive statements at this point about AI because you don't know what what's going to happen tomorrow, and I could totally change the game again. But Auto G G GPT is something that is, as Asim said, connected to the internet and basically seems to be able to operate um, and execute decisions based on your uh, sort of uh, in, uh, your goals. You set it a goal. Um, and if you have the right permissions uh, enabled uh, and various accounts enabled, it will go ahead and do those things for you. So uh, potentially an executive system for everybody. Crazy times, man. Um, yeah, okay. I'm Absolutely. Uh, just what? Just one more, um, which is uh, about LinkedIn's verification. Yeah. So I think we're this. This ties in with the fact that if if technology creates everything and everybody that's online and everything they say, then 
we do need to do things to get to a better you know source of what's true and what's not and i don't mean elon musk's truth gpt i mean linkedin's verification yeah i mean it is a big one and so you know twitter have done it facebook have done it but they get users to pay for it yeah uh, linkedin's LinkedIn not going to do that and it's going to be doing the opposite of that which is well it's not going to be doing it's not going to pay you to verify but i mean clearly everybody that wants to be credible on there is going to need to verify so it's a good thing to do yeah by the way folks what do you think of linkedin verification i think it's worth making the distinction between twitter and facebook because i think twitter and facebook have treated verification very much like a like a, a premium thing that you upgrade to um and it might get you more permissions so but you pay for it and there's no actual real verification other than giving your phone number uh whereas linkedin are actually not paying not charging you for it they're encouraging you to do it and they've got some verified they're using a third party uh, a sort of software provider to help them do that, which is looking at government data. So very similar to how banking uh, systems might work. It's like a know your customer type of thing. People are going to have to uh, basically uh, submit per, uh, photo ID in uh, on digital way, probably even hold it up to a screen and stuff like this. So um, will you do it? Um, uh, uh, let me know in comments below. We had a, a poll, I think two weeks ago on that. And I think basically the, um, just under half of the brain food has said they would. Um, and uh, the, the about 20% were ambivalent, but only like less than 10% would say absolutely not. So I think uh, as recruiters, we may be biased. Um, and because uh, we obviously have a particular uh, heavy usage of LinkedIn and probably we're tired of fake accounts and, and dodgy accounts as well. So it might uh, help uh, our credibility. You can imagine candidates simply ignoring uh, non-verified recruiters at some point right um so you know the, the, there may even be a filter at some point where uh you could set up a, a response to say look anybody messaged me that hasn't got a, a verified account it goes into this inbox and you forget about it so i think recruiters are gonna have to do it really yeah I, I i agree and i think that everybody probably will end up doing it um and it's going to be interesting that it it's, it's interesting the way that they've said they're not charging people for it because if they did that then they'd be inferring that there's a problem with fake people on linkedin which i don't think they want to say whereas twitter can't exactly hide from it facebook right. can't exactly hide from it um, right and yeah I, I i think uh it'll be the bit that i'm interested in is what happens when most people have done it do we have distrust of people who haven't done it yep so I think that's so. the bit I'm interested in. I think that's a normal, that's a, that's a, it's an obvious implication. It's similar to someone without a photo on LinkedIn. Um, I mean, you don't just like, you, you kind of viscerally judge it. Um, and you yeah. think, you know, what's that? Oh, it's, it's, it's a little less trustworthy than someone with a photo. Um, so I think that having that badge will make a difference uh, on LinkedIn. And by the way, Stephanie, quite right. There are absolutely security concerns um and there, there will be there will be hacks there's no doubt about it um but i just think for us as recruiters we might we might not have too much of a choice um simply because um it probably will affect our uh, engagement sort of uh, level it will affect our job performance directly um so uh so yeah it's gonna be gonna be tough and you can imagine from a job seeker point of view as well it's like they're gonna also be highly motivated to do it um, because they want to, to, to increase the trust signal that yes, they did work for this company for this period of time or what, and that's been verified. 
Um, so, Lee, I totally get it. Blockchain is the solution, but it's obviously a massive adoption issue. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're still a million miles away from that. Okay. I, um, I'm not sure that will ever happen. I don't think I, I can't. I can't now see any validity for blockchain that can't be achieved in the World Wide Web. I, I, I can't I can't see anything that can't or can't be done in the system we're in. Well, it is about the proof. It's just trust level. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a next level of trust it's a, in the sense that it's programmatically verified. So you don't even need to trust it. Um, but anyway, I think we'll this talk- is the point. This is the this is the point of LinkedIn and well, Twitter, etc. doing it is it, uh, it, it. I'm not saying that's an alternative to blockchain, but it, it's 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 them couching against being leapfrogged by some other system that people use. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you do. We probably should do a blockchain sort of show at some point. Um, although even though the blockchain kind of star has waned within the advent of AI, but it's still very relevant because um, I think it is. it does provide um, a kind of an alternative vision of how the future internet might look like. And we actually don't know what the implication of AI is going to be on blockchain. Potentially it could accelerate um how 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 do we even use blockchain with ai for instance it's, it's fascinating uh, so something we should potentially look into um okay let's get andy onto the show and we'll talk about sort of where we're at um i think uh, this is uh, something going to be fascinating for the pair of us adam because even though you have got some corporate experience um i don't think you've ever worked quite at the scale of this type of organization have you well you've worked for like yes pwc yeah like um, half, a, half a million people so i have but yeah, that was admittedly a long time ago and as a, with nothing as a, like the level of as a responsibility um, oh, so. as our guest there he is mr andy headworth here he is and how are you folks how are you both very well. Very well to see you, Andy. Um, uh, wonderful to have you on the show. I can't remember the last time you were on Brain Food Live. You have been on before, but it was have... it was probably when we were in the single digits. We're like episode <laughs> seven or something, uh, episode two or three, two or two now. So welcome back to the show. Wonderful to have you. Um, Andy, for the people who don't know you, uh, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Who are you? What it is you do? Yeah, so... Uh... I have been, I suppose, a long, I've been in recruitment now. I dread to think how many years, but there's a three and a zero in there somewhere. So I've gone through as a recruiter, uh, agency side, and then for about 12 years was a consultant working with organizations on uh, strategy, technology, and for 10 years, social recruiting, which is what Hung was referring to earlier, uh, uh, blogging, presenting all over the world and working with organizations. And then seven years ago this summer, um, I got that call as people in the consulting world do and say, We've got a role here in the civil service. Do you fancy uh, coming and helping us sorting our strategy out? And uh, it took my now boss actually about half an hour to persuade me to think about it because I'd never even thought of a civil service role being, you know, in the private sector um, and then took the role. And seven years later, I'm still here. I loved it. I came in as an interim um, and then once you get under under the cover, and we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, in a minute, scratch the surface and, and absolutely love my time here. And then I've gone through a series of journeys to to get to my current role. So uh, and still here seven years later and still loving it. So I, if you'd have said to me, hung on, when we spoke 10 years ago, oh, by the way, you'll be in the civil service. I'd have gone, you're barking mad. And yet here I am this time later, you know, loving life and, and thoroughly enjoying the yeah, enjoying the place to place to work. 
mean, Andy, that's a, I remember when you took that job and I, I raised my eyebrow thinking <laughs> I didn't expect, I didn't expect that to be Andy's next move. Um, well, so the, the challenge was a challenge that Adam, because what happened was it, I was, because I went as an interim to start with, it was presented as the challenge. So yeah. the IT side of of HMRC, which is about four and a half thousand strong, uh, were just about the, just about to go through the build of what is now making tax digital and the digitization of the tax service and the apps and, and you doing it online. And they hadn't built that and they needed sort of a thousand digitally focused people to build it, but they needed to recruit them in about 18 months to two years. And they had exhausted every avenue. And then that was, that was so I came in on the back of, right, how do we recruit a thousand people in two years with skills that can't be found? We can't do it. So, so I went in on the back of that, that then opened the door. And as soon as you're in the, the other side of it, you then get to see the, the scale, the complexity, the variety um, the, of opportunity here. Uh, and that's that. So I guess it came in on that rather than the civil service cell. That just happened to be the client that was requiring the people at the time. Let's talk about that as the first challenge, Andy, because the perception of the public sector, the perception of the um, the civil service, even even the perception of HMRC, it's a tax office, right? So um, the, 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 those strike me as potentially interesting recruitment challenges, aren't they? Especially if you're recruiting people that aren't familiar with any of those places and you want them, uh, you mm -hmm. want to diversify the skill set and diversify the minds, uh, sort of the thinking uh, and getting people from different places. How have you tackled that side? I guess this is an EB question. Like, how how uh, have you tried it, or have you just accepted? Hey, listen, we're just going to have to deal with that. You know, we can't remove the functionality of what we do. Um, uh, we will just plow on. What's been your approach? Well, first of all, I don't accept anything here at all, and my team will tell you that we we've uh, we've tried and broken pretty much every rule under the sun over the last seven years. So the, the challenge was originally was that to start with, and it was probably a bigger challenge with the perception of hiring managers thinking like that than it was us reaching out to the external world. So they tried up until that point, we've civil service jobs is the default job board we have to use. Um, and they would use that and they would use, they were using, I don't think it was TMP, but it was the incumbent before TMP who were just running campaigns and just like post and praying for everything. So my strategy from day one was to bring an external team in, flip it on its head and go private sector, basically, and go proactive on everything we did. Um, you know, brought in LinkedIn Recruiter. We brought in Indeed. We brought in JobSite. We brought in other tools as well that we could use to go out and, and look for people. So first thing we did was recruit, you know, four good external recruiters and hide them in from the external world. And then five of us went, five of us went on a journey of, of, not only doing the recruiting, and we'll come back to the brand bit in a minute, but also trying to change the mindset of everything that went on here that was what you might say is classic civil servant-ish um, and tradition and policy and process using an ATS that was far from perfect. Um, uh, still isn't, but anyway, another conversation. Um, and so we, we, we did that and we did, you know, we did everything from... We changed the way we interview, we changed the way we sift, we changed the way we approach candidates, engage them, we speak to them. We we did all the things that a good proactive team of recruiters would do. And 
it it was it was received incredibly well inside the the IT side because it was a breath of fresh air and actually they could start to go out and reach people that they weren't reaching before and the flip side of it going on to the conversation of the brand all we did to start with was we worked a story of what we were selling so to your point of uh we're you know with a tax authority we're here to collect money but what are we here to collect money for well, we collect money for for all the public services the health service the policemen the firemen so we started to build a, a, a story around um do you know what hmrc is do you know what we do yeah you take tax off us no we take tax for a reason and we want to make it better we make it more efficient and we're building this digital platform that is the like of which has not been seen before in the uk we've got the biggest transformation projects that were going on in europe with the way that we were doing the digitization and attracting some fantastic people and that's how we sold it we sold it on the the tech the journey and then when people have joined the civil service we were just you know we have four thousand people of half a million people and there are 400 departments here all doing different things so you know we, we were selling the journey of you know come into this it department and then when you're in the civil service, the ability to move around to different departments, do different projects, exciting work and stuff you probably never even heard of. And suddenly, because we went after the architects first, uh, Byron and myself and Pat and the others, we, you know, we got the architects really excited. We got them interested in a project because, yes, money was an issue. So we couldn't go for the top 20 percent. So we settled on the 80 percent uh, of the marketplace um, and we engaged them, told them the story told them what we were doing, brought them in, did workshops, you know, did open days, did all the usual things. It was the personal thing that they've never done before. And the civil service still don't do it like doing a lot of in terms of engaging people proactively for recruitment. And so once we told the story, we didn't have a problem. We got them hooked. And, and so we, it was more about appealing to the mindset of the people we were recruiting with a little bit of civil service and, and HMRC, but it was the solution we were selling that help them in to start with yeah so, so the way go ahead i'm you say something i was going to say yeah i mean the one thing that you you kind of um you expressed it um clearly but i want to just talk about a little bit more detail is what does hmrc do hmrc do it collects tax but what does it really do the whole country runs on what hr hmrc is delivering to the nation yeah. Right. And so what you've done is you've gone, what's the what's the real story here? What's the thing that we're doing to change people's, you know, existence? And you've conveyed that in a slightly better way to the market than a lot of corporate organizations do, which are which are maybe doing they may be doing interesting things, but they convey so badly what their real genuine like purpose and value is and why people should be interested. So that's an employer branding bit. But then the other bit is you've conveyed really effectively what's the challenge in here? And it might be a public sector organization, but the challenge in here is something that nobody's done in no. this country before. So it's like monumental and career defining things that you could be working on. And we still continue to do that today. So the projects, you know, the evolution of them. Um, and the other thing we take it, we go forward a few years um, and think of COVID. You know, we were given the... The directive from the treasury when COVID was going on to say right we're going to do this you've got like four weeks guys you need to build this because we need to do that um, and we were standing up projects in six weeks that um 
that delivered you know a lot of the schemes that that helped benefit many people in the country to you know over that course of that 12 12 to 18 month period um, and again the stand-up speed of programs of scale that we delivered um, was just phenomenal um, you know they work in 24 7 literally for six weeks and split teams to deliver these things um, and again caliber because of the caliber of the people we've already been recruited years before enables us to do that and so we you know we stood up um, those teams for a very hectic period for however long that was for about six months um, but they all got delivered and, and again we had that window of a year post-covid there where people saw what we delivered to the country and because they actually felt it personally um whereas usually to hung's point right at the beginning we just collect tax and then the, you know so the, the bell curve goes down the other side of of people's uh thought process towards hmrc so for a while we were right at the top of that bell curve of of um of happiness with people because we were giving them things so um yeah it was it was great to be part of that as well to be honest so again we've got some you know great stories like that to tell where if people want to come in and make a change you know they can do that what's interesting here as well andy is that the the, the magnitude or scale of the problems like firstly the right the, there seems like you're IT, hiring it people and they love to be working with things that have genuine scale and genuine substantive impact but that's true for anybody, isn't it? Like you could, it doesn't yeah. have to be a technical job. If if you're told that actually this is a, a nationally impo important project, uh, affects millions of people straight away, you're going to be feeling a little bit more switched on than you know if you just you know selling something in a shop, for instance. Um, so um, uh, th that is uh, interesting, but also over time the stories improve don't they because you start having the internal case studies you can roll out there's more uh, conversations you can have so you, you start building up a really good body of, of of narratives if you like that you can have conversations with people that might previously have not considered uh, the government or the or the, uh, the hmrc as an option so maybe this gets you get more powerful as you get forward the the, yeah. the, the ability to convert people yeah absolutely and you know and We've just, you know, you mentioned EB earlier, you know, we've got round to in, in this talent acquisition function, which has been going now for nearly 18 months, two years, uh, since inception anyway. Um, you know, that was a key part of it was to formally develop, you know, an employee value proposition alongside the employer brand. And we've had Steve Ward and Universum working with us for a year, doing a fantastic job. So we've now delivered the, delivered the EVP. Now we're in the activation phase. So now we're in the fun part. Now we're in the storytelling. An hour and where we can go and tell the stories and our people can tell the stories for us which is what we're going to be doing um over the next uh well, the next year or two um across the different platforms that we'll be using so um as you say we've got plenty to tell we just want to tell it because one people hear the stories and they hear what we do and hear the things that the scale that we work under and and some of the things that you guys probably don't even know we even do because <laughs> it's under the hood um then they get, you know, it's it's super exciting, and you realise why people can come into this organisation, and they're still here forty years, and they've had six or seven careers in different areas because we've got, you know, we've got twenty eight, I think it's twenty eight now, twenty eight professions across the civil service, and we we pretty much got all of them. So it doesn't matter whether you're a facilities manager, a project manager, call centre person, IT person, marketing, HR, uh, finance, you name it, we've got opportunities in this organisation um with the bigger organization around us of the civil service so that you know if you come in here and then you want to further it 
you can go into 300 other departments. So in terms of scale hung, it is it, it is just a bit mind blowing, really, to be honest. And and not to sort of sort of evangelise about working for the government or the HMRC, but the, obviously job security is a th- concern for a lot of people out there with uh, yeah. a tech recession, with things like AI coming in and all this type of stuff. But actually, if you work in the government uh, and you're in you're in the door, um, there's strong uh, sort of incentives for the government to either redeploy you elsewhere if there is a, a risk of redundancy. Uh, cross-train you into different things plus you you can navigate that internal universe so it, it's actually it sounds like a, 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 as safe a harbor as as can be um it, when you take a look at the alternatives of working you know private sector so maybe maybe that will come swings and roundabouts and suddenly the the governments will become like a a, a, a premium place to work to, that people might want to go to unless you're do- unless you're the uh, uh deputy prime minister yes of course Let's keep politics out of this one. Yeah, see, he, he, he's Andy's under instruction as a, as, a, as probably no now a, fa- a fairly senior civil servant. He can't actually talk about this. Um, okay, um, let's talk about this uh, concept of leadership of this type of size Sorry, and scale. Go ahead, Hunk. Could, could I could I just ask Andy to verify that what you just said is true though? Yeah. Around like like once you're in, you're unlikely to get made redundant. You are going to have access to looking for other opportunities and getting trained and the opportunity to move into other departments and things like this. This is all yeah. correct, is it? Correct. Yeah. So if if I just give you, I just want to give you an idea of scale for people. You asked me a question, you know, before we started this on email. Uh, I just want to give people an idea of scale because for a recruiter coming in who, you know, who doesn't under, you know, who doesn't necessarily know what the public sector is. You mentioned it earlier. We are, I think, the second, we always argue, first or second largest organisation here. So there's two or three of us. We have got the 66,000 people. Um, 28 professions, so we cover every profession. We've got, um, within side HMRC, we've got 12 core business groups, which then uh, secondary areas goes out to about 30 different groups covering uh, everything you can imagine. We've got 14 regional centres. So these are the brand new purpose built by us, uh, modern regional centres in 14 cities, England, Ireland, Scotland, Northern Ireland, sorry, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, another further 11 specialist sites. Um, So that's the footprint of where we are. And so when we come to recruitment, you know, being able to recruit pretty much anywhere across the UK is also another benefit and we can look at then moving skills and and you know if we if we need to move skills around we go to where the skills are if possible um location dependent obviously so and and the scale of that then goes into the work we do as well you know so if you think about as i said we've got some of the biggest biggest transformation programs going on across europe at the moment digital transformation if, if not the biggest and and one of the projects which is public you know it's public information so i'm not sharing any secrets is the whole single sign-on project. So we are working on this for the government so that we are able, you are able as a customer of ours, of anyone else for the government, to be able to log on and literally do everything from one login. Now, if you imagine the complexity of that from a passport to a driving license to universal credit to tax to every other 300 or departments that we've got, 400 departments, the complexity of building that and the scale and the architecture required to so go back to your point earlier hung about uh making it a fantastic place to come and learn and, and do something you're never going to do again but the scale and speed um 
it, you know, it's, you know, you can, you can sit there and, and blow your mind sometimes, but uh, yeah, it's so for recruiters coming in and getting their head around that sometimes is, uh, you know, cause I, I went from, so I came in and did the first role in the IT department and we, that first year we recruited, I think 550 people, which was unheard of. And we, we had that, that's an audited figure. At the end of that year, I was then asked to go and lead recruitment for the whole of HMRC then. So 5,000 to 60 plus thousand and do the same thing again. And for me as an experienced recruiter at a senior level to take it from an IT side of 5,000 people to jump, you know, 12 times as big, that that took me three months to, you know, saying earlier, it took me three months to assimilate that and get my head around it and then play politics at the same time. And then I had big, big team politics, uh, you know, uh, big department politics within HMRC to play with. And it, yeah, it took, even though I was, I've been there 18 months, it still took me three months to get my head around the scale of it um, before, you know, to be able to then, to, to then, you know, sort of move on and get things done. So it's, um, that's one of the challenges when we come in for the first time. Let's keep leaning on that because that takes us right to the core of the topic, Andy, um, the leadership at mega scale. Yeah. How is it different? I mean, is it simply you've got to speak to much many more people uh, to get familiar with things? Is it just a, an information absorption challenge um, is the main, main, main issue? Both. Yeah. I mean, from a leadership point of view, it, it is scale. But one of the things that the civil service does from a, a leadership development is always leading through others. So you lead through the people that you know you lead through your teams you lead through their teams so um it, that that's the, the the philosophy of the way that the civil services looks at leadership uh from my point of view it was about it's about getting out and you know the stakeholder management getting out seeing as many people as possible talking to them understanding the problems that's old school recruiter in me because i wanted to hear it and see it recruit a damn good team of leaders around you which i have now uh, I've got three very good leaders that are working for me and they've got good teams underneath them. And so that allows me then to permeate the message across the organization because you can't get round, you know, if you, just to give you an idea in currently we have probably got, because once you're a manager, you become a, a potential hiring manager. Every manager can hire someone. We've currently probably got about 10,000 hiring managers in the organization at various levels. Um, no way can you get around all of those you know you have to use you have to use your teams and and various things so for me it's around it's being visible and communicating it's being transparent it's being out there and being absolutely inclusive of everybody because you need everyone helping you and inclusive in many different ways um can I ask the question of how you become visible? Did you, because uh, uh, one of the things that obviously you were, you were known for prior to uh, HMRC was obviously your fantastic blog and your social media presence and stuff like that. Were you able to use some of your know-how there and deploy it internally within HMRC to elevate your position, your department and your purpose? Good question. I didn't to start with. I used the tools and I used the, the methods to do it, but I didn't use my track record before. Well, I used my track record, but didn't use any of the information. So I, I made a conscious decision when I came, when I walked through that door, I actually stopped. If you look at all my social feeds, apart from LinkedIn, I literally stopped the day I walked in that door because the job was so big, I had to focus on it. And then slowly the bits, you know, we started to bring bits in, but I used the methods, the tools, the ways of, of engaging groups of people, the social networks, the LinkedIn networks, uh, 
getting people hooked on you know how they you know telling the stories and getting people hooked on that side of things so trying to generate without trying to ram it down their throats because a lot of people weren't interested in social believe it or not still they had a job if you got if you're in here with a job for life attitude which a lot of people had you know we had to persuade people to go on linkedin to build their profile for internal moves and so it wasn't until probably the second half of my career here, so the latter part of three years, have we really started to focus on con the content and getting involved in that again. Even though we've used content, colleagues were doing it. And, and again, now over the last year, we've started to really start to ramp that up again. So with the social feeds, you know, we're, we're, on, we're on Twitter and LinkedIn and use LinkedIn extensively. We're about to launch on Instagram um, and YouTube at some stage in the near future with the employer brand. So. It's all still there. The tools and the tricks are still there. So in the background, they're all being used, but um, not as visible as you may have thought, um, just because of the audience I was dealing with. My experience of going from um, a smaller organization to last year going into a bigger organization and seeing how they operate was the processes needed to be totally different for scale. Um, so like going from the 5,000 and 500 hires to the 60,000 and however many thousand hires it was, um, what were the, what were the processes that you had to sort of standardize and that sort of thing to make your team scalable? Good question. To, to, when I stepped into the center, we, we were using, we were using Olio as the ATS still do currently. Um, and so the first thing we did was we, you know, the, the process. So when I've went into the center hmrc's perception of recruitment if you said recruitment to anyone we, let me go back one stage within the organization we've got two big parts of hmrc one customer service and they deliver the customer service side whether it's on the phones which is predominantly there or via chatbots or via via chat and then we've got the other side which is the compliance side which is where you know we collect uh, the yield of the tax and that's where the tax collection comes in and, you know, those are the two big areas. You know, when I came in, there were 25,000 in each. They're the big machines of the organization and therefore the big influencers and the big drivers. So when I first started, when, when people said recruitment, recruitment to everybody was campaign for customer service, big campaigns for the customer compliance. And I mean, thousands at a time. You know, we were recruiting at the time when I came in, probably about 8,000 people a year. Uh, in those so scale was like okay this is a bit crazy so the first thing was to try and actually get that get that sorted out and, and show people that recruitment wasn't just running a campaign for a thousand people because that was a perception problem they just thought i'll run a campaign for 50 people here or 100 people there so back to your question about process we, we looked at the process of olio and what we were using and got that as smooth as we could because it was a bit bumpy um all the time iterating that part of it so there's nothing we could do to change that couldn't change the supplier not much influence in the supplier because it was run by it's run by government recruitment services in cabinet office and they hold a pen on it and our ability to influence was, was very limited so, but what i did do then was okay so that's the the backbone of the numbers but what about the the other four thousand people we recruit every year that doesn't sit in the volume so they're all the everything else that we recruit and how do we go and find those so it was very much about then I just built the team from there. So we put recruiters in, we put a recruitment marketing team in, we went out and found some technology to use, we expanded LinkedIn, um, we brought in recruitment business partners to act as the engagement with the business. 
And then we started to understand where we could influence in the organization, where the problems were, where the issues of recruitment were. Um, and so we picked off the problems, Adam, bit by bit, really, to be honest, because it was, you know, it's eating the elephant bit by bit, isn't it? And then we slowly built it up. We developed the reputation. We delivered, we delivered, we delivered. Um, and reputation grew fairly quickly from there. And then it was a question of trying to manage demand of people coming to my team to help them with their recruitment and, and deliver against that as well. Because, um, and it's a challenge for your for the listeners or the, the viewers here. So we've been trying for seven years to try and figure out how we can define my proactive recruitment team. And we've defined it as hard to fill roles. And by that, I mean, if you stick a vacancy on civil service jobs and you get 50 good applications, you don't need me to go and do the recruiting. But if you try and put one on and you get zero, come and talk to Andy and his team. And we still haven't defined better than hard to fill roles over the years. Um, <laughs> that's our definition, which is crazy. And then rapid reaction. Rapid reaction force. Yeah. That's it. Um, so anyway, so that, that's how we did it. And we then, and that just then, you know, that grew and we took on more, we took on more of the back office. We took on more of the operational work and we, you know, the scalable, large campaigns we we worked on we tried to make them as, as efficient and iterative as possible we cut chunks out and cut sections out to try and bring down that you mentioned time to hire earlier you know we started at 100 160 days for some of these campaigns um and then after a couple of years we were down to 63 so we did a pretty good job with that to be fair and that was without and that was with using olio and still fine-tuning it that's really interesting. What what I'm getting from this picture, Andy, is that it's a huge, huge challenge, huge scale. It's senseless to go and just you know sit there for three months and strategize everything. You got you got to go in and like sort of take bits of it and then attack those bits and then build from there. Um, so it's almost like you know what you got to you, you can't ever see the full scale of it. You got to just identify. A lot of it is problem discovery. Um, you're only going to discover that if you actually interact with the, the requirements and interact with the business. Um, and it seems that a lot of the early recruitment that you did for your team was to almost to build the 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 the, the, the antennae for the TA team so that you could figure out actually, you know, what does the business actually want and need, getting the business partners in, for instance, and stuff like that. So uh, very, very interesting um, uh, sort of approach. Uh, folks, um, just a quick pause. Um, uh, we've got 10 minutes left before we have to get off air. Um, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Obviously, we keep going on. However, we have to come off air at some point. Um, but before we do that, we want to make sure that everyone who is enjoying this conversation and learning from uh, Andy about this um, gets the opportunity to continue uh, connecting with other people that have similar kind of interests. So uh, take a moment. Take your LinkedIn URL and put it in the chat stream on Crowdcast. If you're watching this on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever it is, do the same thing. Get your LinkedIn URL and stick it in the conversation thread and then connect with everyone else who's done the same thing. Um, uh, one, one of the things I'm getting feedback-wise from people who watch this show regularly um, is that they're going away and saying, oh, this is great. I'm getting like uh, 30, 40 really good connections every week. Um, and I'm thinking, yeah. Why not? Uh, you know, you could really d deepen your network by simply paying attention to Brain Food Live. Um, and if that helps you, you know, build a denser, higher quality network, then why not? Go ahead and do that and connect with everybody. Um, okay, Andy, um, in terms of sort of advice you would give yourself, now that is, uh, I guess it's one of these where, you know, you can, it's never going to stop. 
you, this journey is going to keep rolling forward. There's never a situation where you can say, right, job done. Um, but see whether you can just pause on what your immediate urgent actions are now. And if you could teleport yourself back to where you were when you uh, took on that, you know, big scale up from 5,000 to 60,000, what sort of things would you now advise yourself that you think, yeah, that could have saved me six months had I known this? Uh, have you got any observations you could share? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, I think that. Uh, well, it's, a, it's a good question because some of the things I would like to have done would have been technology focused, which we didn't have the opportunity to change. So uh, we had a good go at doing that and we didn't get there with it. I think from my point of view is would be speak to more senior people quicker. I think I was a bit reticent initially, not scared. It was the wrong word, but I was too focused on trying to get something delivered. Um, I could have spoken to, to more of, you know, the main directors, XCOM, senior directors, um, and sown the seed quicker to allow things to flow faster, further down the line. And I didn't do that. I was too focused on the operational delivery issue at the time, uh, which was substantial, to be fair. Um, that would be one. And, and Andy, that, Andy, that sounds like, to me, one of those things that you would only have known with hindsight, though. So it sounds like you probably didn't make a mistake. You just, you didn't, it, yeah. it, you know. It wasn't a mistake, but I pitched, I pitched, you know, I pitched at the director level, but actually, yeah, you're right. In hindsight, knowing the way the operation, the organization works, level of influence down. Um, and I think probably being braver, even braver, because I was brave with some of the people decisions at the time. Now, that's not as easy in the civil service as you can imagine, uh, judging when you said those comments earlier, Hung. So um, we were quite, well, I was quite brave already anyway, bringing the people in, maybe looking at what we were working with and how we how we presented ourselves um, and how we then delivered certain aspects would something I'd look at now. Um, but it's always the same when you inherit. You, you you can always look back and think, yeah, what if, but you don't have any choice in reality. You obviously make the most and you develop and train people as, as best you can. Um, but now was to be fair, I was pretty happy with that. Yeah, I mean, the other target um, that year that my boss gave me when she offered me the job. Let's be fair, she offered me the job on the twenty on the twenty third of December, and I started on the twenty eighth. So that was my that was the process. Um, was uh, so? Can you just can you just revolutionise recruitment? Oh, and can you deliver Brexit, please? I want an extra five thousand people on top of your demands next year. And that was my brief. That was my sort of like objective. So. Um, that was also in the back of my mind to deliver that. And we delivered Brexit three times in the end for about 10,000 people in total because of the delays of Brexit. So it Can you was... explain what that means, um, deliver Brexit, uh, Andy? So as part of the arrangement for the government, we were required to take over the, the borders, the different customs borders, um, every access point into the UK by air, by sea, by land. Um, and therefore, we're also required to build all the custom rebuild or brand new customs arrangements for people to trade with us and buy products and sell things. And we had to build all of that and man then all the inland border clearance facilities as well. So the 5000 people represented people to build, to manage uh, and to develop uh, the relationships, you know, in all the different parts around the around the UK. And we're still doing a lot of that now. 
um, and we delivered the 5,000 total in year by in the first year. Um, and then, of course, that got delayed and then that got extended again and extended again. So by the end of it, um, I think the total was was best part of 10,000 people over two and a half years for that. So um, I do remember yeah. that it was the customs officers, weren't it? Because uh, there was like a massive spike in demand and we actually didn't know what a customs officer was because we, we obviously <laughs> were in the in the EU for that period of time. And we'd, yeah. we'd done without these people and these folks had gone and didn't done different jobs. So um, you need to kind of recruit for an, effectively a sector that hadn't existed. Um, and I guess cross-train people. Um, yeah, that, people. Uh, that, yeah. yeah, and I think the other thing as well, which was, um, so one of the things I was talking about when I went into the organisation, first of all, was Total Workforce Solution. And I was banging on about it, banging on about it forever. And then, of course, no one really got it, understood what I meant, but, you know, hopefully everyone listening here understands what I mean by that. Um, and then COVID happened. So we used to, we, you know, we had three, four, five hundred contractors running at any one time across the organization, like any big company. And I've been banging on about TWS and then suddenly COVID happened and it was like, Andy, um, can you find us 2000 contractors, please? Uh, and we can we have them in two weeks time? So this is, you know, this is entry level um, people come and help us in the, in the custom service side. So that then kicked off a completely new function for us, which was setting up, managing and delivering a complete end to end contingent labor uh division which we'd never done before um which was everything from policy to process to governance to recruitment teams to uh to where we are today uh, of which we we've you know we're running about circa i don't know two and a half three thousand at the moment across the organization supporting us for fiscal events and things like that so again something that, that's came out of left field um but it allowed us to make that transition to a a total workforce solution now and looking at it in a proper way in a balanced way um it also allowed us to do video interviewing which we've been banging on about for ages and suddenly overnight we had to interview 1800 people for brexit and uh we landed the video platform in, in sort of two and a half weeks which was record time so it was a good cat not good for a lot of people for obvious reasons but from a business change perspective it was a tremendous catalyst for us as an organization and allowed us to to make that step to tools that would have been very useful like two years previous. Um, and we're continuing to utilize that, you know, that change, that focus of change. Why was there a resist? Is, do you find one of the one of the cliches about government is that they're quite resistant to innovation, quite resistant to change, um, and, and that apply, imply, applies also, I guess, to technology adoption. And it required like these extraneous kind of uh, instances to shove it forward. Uh, do you think that's a fair characterization that's still persistent in government? It's basically risk averse and tech adoption. And is there anything you can do about it? Um, what's your thoughts? So, yes, uh, business case is a favorite word in, in here. You've got to do business case for everything. I would say from my point of view, I've been very lucky. I had a great CPO and director general in the IT side come in with a great CPO here, very flexible, very open-minded, very forward-looking. The organization is like that a lot of the time, but in my area, I've been very lucky, and now as well with my boss to have that support. I think the word here is policy. You haven't mentioned the word policy yet. Everything has a policy hung. And one thing I did when I first came in was just challenged every single policy that came in front of me. Because you go to someone, you go, I want to do this. They go, no, you can't do it because there's a policy right okay who said that policy who set it who set it and you keep going back down the chain 
and find out for some of them on a Friday afternoon, Jane in accounts made it up because she thought, oh, I'll make a policy, you know, I'll just do a policy. Someone follows that, someone follows that, and suddenly it's become a policy. They're not all like that, obviously. But I think for me, the advice is don't ever listen to the word no, challenge it. Because if you've got something better, if you've got a better solution, whether it be tech, whether it be a way of working, especially in talent acquisition at the moment, and especially with AI and our friends with ChatGPT, et cetera, the number of things that that could help us improve around the process, around every aspect of the recruitment process. You know, don't don't sit back and, and take no, you know, try it, challenge it. Um, and, and, you know, people know me for that. Let's 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 ask that final question, um, Andy. Because obviously, as as Adam mentioned at the beginning of the show, AI has kind of just consumed the, the discourse, um, and rightly so, because it is uh, it is another extraneous event uh, that's really you know reset the board in many cases in terms of what can be done with knowledge work and what have you. What is the current uh, posture within HMRC about people using um, generative AI? Is there a policy? Is someone writing a policy on that? Or is it still uh, people experimenting? Or is it a case of actually you can't experiment without permission? How, no, how are you right. It's, there's no there's no policy yet. I'm sure someone's putting a policy in place. But interestingly enough, the first thing that we refer to when we see something like that that comes down is risk, measures of risk. And for a large organization where we've got huge amounts of data, that, that's probably right. So um, now there's no, there's no aversion to us using it. We're trialing it. We're testing it. My team are... I've got a two-day away day next week where we're just talking chat GPT for two days, where we're looking at every single ang angle of the of the process inside out to see how we can how it can benefit us. I know other organizations, parts of the organization are looking at it. Um, but it's just a benefit. I mean, to me, it's a massive benefit if used correctly um, and, and not abused. But of course, you know, one thing I will say at the tax authority, we have to be so careful because of the word fraud and the other side of chat GPT, which is you know, the scary side of, of how good fraud could be. Um, and so our our cyber teams um, <laughs> are probably scaling quickly around this because uh, they're in the defensive. So, yeah, so we've got to think of this both sides from our perspective. Yeah, it's actually good that there's not actually a blanket no, because even in the, mm. the, 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 the the online community on Facebook, we've got people uh, reporting back saying our, our company's banned this. Um, and you think, wow, that's interesting. It reminds me a lot of how... You know, certain banks used to ban like Google and stuff because they thought, you know, that's obviously uh, either risky or some sort of distraction. Um, we're in a very interesting space with new new, new class of technology like this. Um, yeah, anyway, this, the, 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 the potential for like in a team of 100 recruiters, the, the potential for one person not to really know what they're doing and go and put a spreadsheet of a load of people's names and email addresses and phone numbers into ChatGPT and say, find me more people like this is very high so mm. i can see why so many organizations have banned it yep i i i, I don't want to take an irrash uh, sort of a, a, a not a judgmental position on it um very all good. i'm saying is is that different organizations are, are starting to have different policies on it um and you can imagine that uh government will will eventually um sort of uh uh have a similar uh, policy there as well um google didn't make stuff up no but other people did make stuff up and google still indexed it um yeah, google, so, just, google just um, it. yeah. There's, yeah there's plenty of crap on the internet pre-generative -pre ai all right listen we have to get off the the channel folks 
uh, because we are already contributing enough uh, BS into the internet. Um, <laughs> we have to we have to let it go. Uh, Andy, wonderful to see you. Um, great to have a chat. I hope we get the chance to catch up in person. I don't know when the next uh, opportunity will be. Probably, um, rec probably Wreckfest, I would imagine, with there together. Are you going? Um, yeah. Amazing. Folks, go to Wreckfest if you're in the UK. If you're in the US, go to Wreckfest. USA, it's in Nashville in September, I believe. I'm going to both. It's going to be great. It's very, very, it's very, very, uh, what's the word? It's cheap is the word I want to use. It is cheap, <laughs> 99 quid uh, for an all-day event, and you're going to meet like thousands of people who've got really great value add, including people like Andy Headworth. So, Andy, listen, uh, great to see you, man. I'll see you in a couple of months, hopefully. Uh, say hi to the missus, of course, and oh, uh, we'll catch up soon, okay? All right, thanks. Cheers, Adam. Thanks, son. What a great guy. Um, uh, wonderful dude. Uh, and look forward to seeing him. All right, that's it, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week. We are going to be talking about how to set up a talent analytics function. Um, uh, we've got some amazing guests on the show. We've actually got a completely new slate of people who've never actually been on Brave Food Live before. Uh, it's one of the things I always try and do is to get new people on. Um, that we haven't seen or haven't spoken to. So please make sure you register for that show. I'm prepping for uh, the rest of May as well. We're going to have a, a wonderful lineup. We've already got an idea of what we're looking at. It's going to be exciting. So follow the channel if you want to get updated on that. Uh, have a very good weekend. Otherwise, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. Cool. Pretty good show, hey? I would say. I, I enjoyed that. I really loved hearing about the whole development over seven years. Yeah, it feels like a long it feels like a long period of time, but I bet that flew. I bet that's you know has flown and it's you know, so far. The way Andy's describing it, I'm sure it's a new job every six months. Um and when these new like urgent requirements drop through, um uh, then that that type of thing is exciting. Um and um and Andy looks well. I mean, not to say I would ever commentate on a person's appearance, Adam. Um, but Adam, <laughs> but Andy actually looks like really well. Like he doesn't look like a guy's gone through the mill uh, after seven years, you know. So he, no, he, he looks fresh. Like, yeah, he looks fresh and looks great. So um, so yeah, I'm sure that's gonna be awesome for him. Anyway, um, listen, oh you got planned for the weekend apart from topping up topping up the tan, Adam. Um uh, <laughs> what else is going on? Bit of exercise and as always, watching boxing. What's going on? What's the fight? Did you see Joe Joyce fight um, yeah. uh, uh, last week? Yeah. Surprising, eh? Well, you've always said how blooming slow the guy is. Uh, He's a walking that, building, mate. I mean, if you can get whacked that many times by another slow... I mean, Zhang was not that quick. He was quicker no. than Joyce, though. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think he made some mistakes, but I, I wouldn't hold out a huge amount of hope for him winning a rematch either, to be honest. I don't think he wants that rematch. I think he needs I don't to think get Zhang's out of that. great. He's just no. I, I don't think Zhang's great. I agree. I just think he's a bogeyman for Joyce. He's like he's like a, he's just a better version of Joyce, basically. No, but I think Joyce would get knocked out by anybody who could who could land a straight straight punch. Um so you're looking at Deont Deontay Wilder, obviously he's not a straight punch, but I would say Wilder knocks Joyce out. Uh, Tyson Fury obviously beats him. Um, I don't fancy him against a skilled operator like Usyk either. Um, oh, I think maybe Joyce on, versus Joyce. Joy, if Joyce did, if Joyce did to Wilder what uh, Fury did to Wilder, and that's just constantly go forward. Wilder can't punch on the back foot. He's no good on the back foot. 
Yeah, but Joyce and Wilder are the, just diametric opposites in terms of dynamism, mate. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy, I just see Joyce sitting there eating his right hands. He's going down. Um, but I think... Have you heard what they're Joyce, talking Joyce about versus for AJ would be good. Have you heard what they're talking about for Christmas? A fo- like a, a basically a, a four-way. So on the same night, Usyk v uh, Fury. Two rounds and, and then swap. No, no, no. Usyk v Fury and... AJV Wilder, same night in the Middle East, probably in Saudi in in December. That's what people are trying to work towards. That's a $20,000 ticket uh, minimum to get into that. Um, Well, it's a 400 million purse for those. It's 100 million each for the four of them. Yeah, it would be exciting to see. I mean, hopefully those will get on. They're the the top four, aren't they, more or less? So um, so, so it'd be be good to just throw them in there um, and we'll see. But, uh, But yeah. Uh, what, what, who are you watching uh, this this weekend? Uh, well, there is um, Joe Cord- Cordina against Rakimov for the world title in whatever kind of some like quite flyweight type thing. Um, there's also there's three world title. Uh, no, that's on. Oh yeah, there's oh gosh in America there's um, uh, Tank Davis against uh, Ryan Garcia. So I'll watch that on Sunday morning. I'm not staying up for it, but I mean that is an absolute super fight. Garcia is um, great. I mean, I'm 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 pro Garcia, even though I think he's uh, sort of I think he's he's bitten off more than he can chew here. But um, he's the under he's the underdog in that fight. I think Tank Davis is the is the uh, is the favorite in that fight. But anything could happen in that. And then there's also on Sky, um, Alan the Savage Babich um, against who's a um, Croatian guy who has next to no boxing skills, but he throws windmills, <laughs> takes like takes <laughs> takes big shots, and um, oh gosh, that Congolese guy, uh, Martin Bacoli, uh, he's also fighting on on Sky on Saturday night, and he, I'll tell you what, he's a handful in the heavyweight division for anybody. He smashed up Tony Yoka about a year ago, and he he's a he's a problem for anyone. He's just not getting the fights. Everyone's dodging him like crazy because mm. there's no money in fighting Martin Bacoli. Yeah, um, you just because people don't really know him yet. That's it. But that's it. Yeah. So all right. Well, listen. Enjoy. Enjoy the boxing. Um. Uh, I'll. Uh, I'm gonna just have a bath. I think. So. Uh, all right. I'll catch you later, everyone. See ya. Bye.